Seth, welcome to The One Thing Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, oh I've been a fan for a long time. I was going through my work shelves and just <laughs> I found just four. I know I've got the practice by my bedside. My publisher gave me that, I think, to try to get me to write more frequently. <laughs> but um, before we dive into your newest book, which is called The Song of Significance, which is a book about leadership and a new kind of business culture around how we lead and how we think about accompany it all together. I just wanted to point out, like I was looking at these books, you have a really, I'm sure it's, you've written many books. I think you're very good at kind of picking up on the zeitgeist, the spirit of something that's happening at scale and kind of capturing it, maybe even driving it. You did write Unleashing the Idea Virus um, in some ways. And so like, this is not just a prayer for a better kind of business. I think maybe I'm guessing you're picking up on a lot and that's driving a bigger mission for you with this book. So good job, author and thought leader. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, I'm glad you said it that way. That means a lot. You know, um, what I try to do is when I see something in the world that I don't understand, I try to explain it to myself. And if it turns out that that explanation might be helpful to other people, I try to share it. And a blog post usually gets that off my chest. If I have no choice after that, if the idea will not let me go until I dive deeper and turn it into a book, then I have no choice but to do that. So Permission Marketing was the, the, the book that established email marketing as an industry. When I wrote it, it was a $0 billion industry, and now it's $50 billion. Um, and unleashing the idea virus, I saw how ideas were spreading and I needed to understand why and how. So I explained mm. it. So yeah, it might have something to do with the zeitgeist. Usually I'm trying to write about something that I hope will get better and that I hope will happen more. Yeah, you have um, you bring kind of standards and ethics to your writing in a way that resonates with me, right? Permission marketing, what a novel idea in a world of spam. Um, and it, it is so much more effective. It's just so much more effective to do it the way you preach. So it's not just about being nice. It's also about being effective and more successful in the long run. That's the hope anyway. My, uh, partner, Gary Keller, one of his things is like, he asked, are you trying to have a great year or a great career? Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be a trigger to get us out of that short term. I need to win this race. Um, this battle versus kind of the bigger um, the bigger picture, and it, it's usually pretty effective. And a lot of your books kind of it kind of ask that same question, not just of me as a reader, but of readers in general. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, a lot of turnover in the real estate industry because easy in, easy out. We know yeah. that when housing values go up, a lot of people enter. So I think that Gary's question is more of a question of. If you are trying to have a good year, you're probably not going to be around for very long. Yeah. Because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that the people who are trying to have a good career figure out how to have a good career. Whereas the people who are insistent on the short-term hustle, as soon as things stop being easy, they go away. Yeah, we see about 250,000 to 3,000 churn every year. Um, like you said, there's very few barriers to entry, uh, unlike some other self-employment jobs but it, they underestimate how difficult it is to make a living. And it's, I mean, you look up and you go, wow, the average commission in Austin, Texas is 14,000. I could sell fill in the blank homes and replace my salary. 
That's not how the math works. And um, we're trying to be, as a training and coaching company, that's usually kind of what we say. We're a training and coaching company, thinly disguised as a franchise real estate company. But that is our, like, how do we fix that? How do we help and improve that success rate over time? Um, But enough about us. I want to talk about your book. You kicked this off by sharing some research you did. And like I said, I'm sure you were seeing the signs. And so that asked you wanted to ask the question in a more formal way. Will you tell us a little bit about that survey of 10,000 people, please? So I went to 10,000 people and I asked them a question that every single person I have ever met has an answer to. And the question is, what's the best job you ever had? And everyone remembers it, even more than their first date. They remember the best job they ever had. And so I said, here's 14 things that might have made it the best job you ever had. Please tell me which ones were present for you. And I put in the three things that corporations and bosses think are the three ones. I got paid a lot. I didn't get fired. And I got to tell other people what to do. Because if you're (laughs) trying to get a job or you're trying to leave a job, those are the three things they keep talking to you about. Right. Not one of those. Yeah. And not one of those things, not one came up in the top five or 10. And what people picked was, Mostly, I accomplished more than I thought I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got treated with respect, and I could do that for other people. And I was proud of the work I did. Well, if those are the three, th- that was sorry, and two. I got to work independently. Yes, yeah, some agency. If those are the things that people want, why are we building jobs that don't match those things? And when we think about What would make our job great, particularly if you're semi-independent, like you're a real estate broker? Why are you getting distracted by the things that the system tells you are important when you just told me what's important to you? It's Mm -hmm. the real skills. It's emotional labor. It's being able to look other people in the eye. It's about doing something difficult, not doing something by the numbers. And so that led me down the path of why don't we start over now that machines don't dominate the work because we're not on the assembly line? Now that AI is right around the corner, why don't we start over and say, let's get real or let's not play. Let's figure out why we're here. I love it. I actually went down and counted. Making a lot of money was 12, right? Out of 14 or whatever the characteristics. And that is the one that a lot of people will justify, but I make a lot of money, Like, but I make a great living. But at what cost, right? What amount of your life have you given in exchange for those dollars and what will you do with them, right? And that doesn't mean it's the wrong choice for everyone. I just think that there's way too much focus given just on that one aspect and your research kind of blows a hole in it. Yeah, I, I think that it is the wrong choice for everyone under the circumstances. So if, like, so if, if a marketer says, We need to lower our prices. I say to them, low price is the last refuge of a marketer who's run out of ideas. And (laughs) the flip side of that is high salary. High salary is the last refuge of someone who can't be honest about what their life is about. If you've run out of everything else that matters to you, then that, yeah, it's the easiest one because it's just add another zero. So people need to make enough money. And in some countries, enough is higher than others. But all the data shows that after you make enough, More money does not make you happier. That's interesting. They're both races to the bottom, 
right? When you make yeah. it about price because you don't provide value in marketing, there's that inevitable race to the bottom, which you described somewhere in here. But like it starts off as, wow, look at the bump in revenue. And as soon as your competitors jump on board, it gets bad. So that's like using your cost of sale. And then you don't offer value to the talent you have in the building. So you throw money at it and it can be a race to the bottom, right? Well, how much will it cost for you to keep me, you know, keep you for another year kind of, you know, finagling? Two of the things that we need to kind of make a transition. I want to AI. I don't want to go off on that. Everybody's crazy about it right now. I think people tend to over-index on what might happen in the short run. And we're beyond just the short run. This has been kicking around for a while, but underestimate in the long run. But one of the reasons I latched onto that was if we're going to be disruptive anyway, right? Work is going to be disrupted at some level. That is also an opportunity to create more than just the change that that singular disruption has. We're already going to have to adjust. Let's also adjust the way we think about workers, what we think about work. So I felt like that gave us a moment where at this instance where we have a chance to make change because we'll be dealing with change already. Does that feel like a good hypothesis for why the timing might be really good for this? I think it's a great hypothesis in general. You know, there are people, uh, for example, in the real estate business who said MLS isn't going to change anything and Zillow isn't going to change anything (laughs) above. And uh, they have been proven wrong again and again. The thing that they are- don't work. Yeah, but (laughs) assessments aren't really about home values. The the first thing that I would say about AI is this. The more you actually use it, mm-hmm. like if you're not using it for half an hour a day, then you really don't have a voice in the conversation. If you are using AI for half an hour a day to do searches, to interact with this the, the system, I would love to hear your opinion on how it's not going to change everything. Because of course it is going to change everything. And so where that leads me is this. Human beings aren't going away. Either AI is going to work for you or you're going to be a cog in a system that is disrespected. So you've got to figure out how to take this tool right this minute and put it to work for you, which puts you on the hook to figure out what your one thing is to put on, be on the hook to say, I have to add value doing more than clerical work because the clerical work is going to get done for me one way or the other. Yeah. So it can be empowering. Like every technological innovation when it's accepted, puts a certain number of, it kills a certain number of jobs. Historically, it replaces them with better for the people who adapt. Like there used to be people who used to go around lighting lamps before electricity, right? That job doesn't exist anymore and that's not a bad thing. So AI could be a good thing or a bad thing, but I like that. Just go in and play with it. Find out how you can leverage it to move forward versus, oh, woe is me. This is going to take away my crappy job. It can't do the value work, but it can get you to do more value work if you harness it correctly. Right, if you have the guts. And the guts yeah. is choosing to stand for something, to be missed if you were gone, to not have the deniability that comes from doing what everybody else does. Mm-hmm. That there are lots of industries where there, the goal is to fit in all the way. And the problem is when you fit in all the way, you disappear. And no new value is accrued because you showed up. And so it's this is about standing out on behalf of, of the people you serve, not standing out because it's good for you, standing out because it's good for the people who have hired you.
Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash O-N-E-5-0 and use code O-N-E-5-0 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. It takes courage, right? It takes a certain amount of courage. And I can't remember who taught me. I'm sure it was a great book I read somewhere and then a mentor beating it into my head. A lot of those moments where we know Hey, I'm taking a chance. I'm 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 betting on myself here and there's risk involved. That fear just signals that it's important, not that it's actually should be scary. And it's only in getting used to doing that that we've become accustomed to this idea is yeah, a lot of the time it doesn't work. But I know as a manager and someone who hires people in businesses, I like to see people taking chances because that's how big leap forwards happen, right? Yeah. We didn't hit it that time, but I love that you went all out and swung for the fences. Let's keep doing that. How do we encourage that and kind of remove some of the fear is good. That means there's stakes, something at stake, tension, as you call it. But also it shouldn't be fear of the kind that stops and shuts people down. But it's, we also got to clarify the, the words taking chances, because here's what's not a chance. It's not a chance if you do the boring, straight ahead clerical stuff. There's zero chance you're going to succeed. So you've already decided to fail. There yeah. are things that involve tension, imposter syndrome, speaking up, uh, leading. Those are things that feel like you're taking a chance. You're not actually taking a chance. You're doing the most productive thing, not the least. Mm-hmm. I like. I won't spoil it, but there you have a nice little mini essay in here about imposter syndrome and how you want more imposters around because of what that actually means, right? Those people that are operating at the edge of their perceived abilities, right? And that having that fear inside. Um, I want to go back to a couple of, oh, go ahead. You're about to- No, no, I was just, I was going to let you spoil anything you want because I don't write books to sell books. I write books to spread (laughs) ideas. So spoil away. No, well, I think we hit it. I wanted to circle back to two really important things, right? That I I take personally and as a manager and I think as an employee, I'm actually, I own businesses and I'm also a W2, right? I have a job in this business. And so I, I get to feel it both ways, right? As the employed and the employer, depending on my day, as the boss or the employee. And agency and trust. I think nothing that you're suggesting happens without trust. So I want to go in there. And I also want to dive in. One of the most second most important things people want is a little bit of control of their time. How did we lose that? Was it ever there? Is this purely just a byproduct of the old industrial barons? Like, how did we lose agency? Okay, so uh, 110 years ago, the uh, assembly line really kicked in. Henry Ford, the Model T, et cetera. And when you own a machine, what you should do is make sure that machine is busy all the time. 
the machine works for you. You control where the machine is located, et cetera. The reason assembly lines are all in a straight line is because when there was only one steam engine, it turned a, a leather belt and that turned a long pole and you had to be under the pole to make your machine work. Okay. So then Frederick Taylor sees this. He meets Henry Ford and he says, wait, people are a machine. Let's use a stopwatch and treat them like machines. And that's where the phrase human resources came from. If you have a human resources department, that's why. Clocking people in, stop watching them, that increases productivity for a while. And what we did is every time we could take a person's job and give it to a machine, we did. So all that was left were the jobs where a stopwatch isn't particularly helpful. But managers were so into the control and authority they got from having a stopwatch, they kept using it. So a friend used to work at Bloomberg. They count every keystroke. They count every minute you're sitting at your desk. They count your bathroom breaks because they want to. But what we know is that not just the best job, but the best productivity, the best insight, the best change comes when we give people responsibility. And the thing about responsibility is you have to take it. And it's not like authority. If you take the responsibility, you'll get more of it. And that comes with agency. I agree to do this, to promise this, to deliver this, but you got to let me go figure out how to do it. And if you can keep that promise, you get to do it again. Yeah, I love that. And uh, you take it and you build trust by your effort and results, right? With your manager. Let me take a swing at that. Let me try that. Um, or by the way, I know you didn't ask me to, but I thought I would do this. What do you think, right? Uh, apologize later. There was a story... Uh, one of my favorite thought guys in the finance world is Morgan Housel. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Wrote a great book, Psychology of Money. But he's a great writer and he tells great stories. I can't remember where, if it's a book or his podcast, he told about Franklin Roosevelt. And this is a story about agency. Young Franklin Roosevelt, you know, Victorian or whatever, like very regimented, like go to your Latin class, go do your calisthenics, boom, boom, boom. He complains to his mom, it's like, when do I ever get to choose what I get to do all day? And she says, great, tomorrow you can do whatever you want. Guess what? When he had the freedom to choose, he followed the schedule and he was actually happy about it, not because of the schedule, but because he got to choose it. And I think they call that reactance. People like that the fear of your freedom being taken away is like a psychological thing. And with the whole return to work and return to office, there's been a lot of that kind of moment where they were going to do it anyway, but that requires trust. And I love that you just unlock that. Then I ask the question, how do I earn the trust right. so that I can shape my environment? Is that the right exactly. question? It's a great okay. question. And earlier you said, let me take a swing at that. I think we have to begin with, let me take a putt at that. that <laughs> your, your, your boss is not going to say, please open a new office in Tallahassee. Right. But if you say, I'm going to organize a book group for four people, and it happens, then you can say, can I take care of the company lunch this Christmas? And then you, I mean, you, we work our way up by making promises and keeping them, not by waiting to get picked for the big swing. And so right. if they're, if they're give me putts, but you're always getting them in, then you're going to get to do some chipping, right? And so I hate sports analogies, but there you go. And so- <laughs> You, you, what I have found 
And I work. I spent a lot of time working with eighteen-year-olds. Uh, I spent a lot of time working working with seventy-year-olds. Is it is an epidemic caused by school that people want to know: Will this be on the test? How do I get picked? Please don't give me agency. Give me authority instead. And if we put all three of those things aside because we've been indoctrinated and brainwashed, and say, wait a second, the alternative is: How do I make a difference that isn't easily measured? And how do I get responsibility instead of authority? There's a lot of opportunity in both of those things. Yeah. I, I could go on a long diatribe about our schools. Um, both of my children <laughs> ended up in an alternative school called Acton Academy. and I've spoken about Acton a lot. Okay, good, good. And it is an experiment. It's a little bit, the first few months of the school was very Lord of the Flies. Like the guy, Joey, told you know, the children are kind of in charge of the culture. They set the rules. And it will take time for them to realize the bad rules versus the good rules and fix them. And we have to let them fail forward. And all the helicopter parents like shoot all of their nails to the quick during those couple of months. But we watch the school, the kids being really given a ton of agency and trust to ultimately get it right and fail forward, build an amazing environment for learning. And I've heard in some places that that experiment ends up more like the Lord of the Flies, the book. It doesn't end up quite so well. And the magic ingredient is the guide in Acton or the leader in the office. Like if you're going to do that, how do we, I think you use the language twice. Basically, I started writing leader equals coach, leader equals coach, taking on kind of the mantle of now I'm their coach, not their boss or their, you know, dictator. Right. So what they say, what they say about the Acton Academy, and I've never been in one because there isn't one near here. And so I can't give it an honest, complete endorsement, but I love the concept. Uh, a typical Acton Academy has 120 kids in it and two adults. One adult is the leader. The other adult is the custodian. The custodian's main job is that if the leader tries to tell people what to do, they make them stop. And <laughs> the, the idea that six years old or 12 years old or 15 years old is not too early to learn to lead is so obvious to me that we don't have a compliance problem in our culture. We have a leadership problem. And the only way to learn to lead is to learn to lead. And the way you do that is by opening yourself up to coaching. Mm -hmm. And so there's a Zen koan that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, a, a esteemed uh, professor goes to a, a, a Zen master and says, please teach me everything there is to know about Zen. And while he's saying this, the Zen master is pouring him a cup of tea. And he keeps pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. And now the water's overflowing from the cup and he keeps pouring. And the visitor says, stop, stop, stop. What are you doing? The cup is overflowing. And he says, how can you expect me to fill the cup when it's already full. Mm. And this person was coming to the teacher saying, teach me what I need to know, but refusing to empty their cup first. And what we need to be able to do for our kids is to say, you already know a lot, but if you want to know something more, I have to make you incompetent at what you used to know. You have to be willing to empty the cup and be coached. And that is so different than taking out your notebook and being taught. Yeah. Lectured to, right? Yeah. You really nail, nailed it for someone who's never been to one. The largest like 
grade school, middle school, high school are capped at 35, they each get one guide. And the guide's job, they can't give answers, only ask questions. So it takes a lot of patience to be a leader in that environment. But I would tell you, if you're trying to do it the right way, it takes a lot of patience to be a parent and a leader, right? But it's the same thing. How do we teach people how to think? So they make great decisions without us in the room. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, I I love public school. Uh, My kids went to public school, but I ran a very tiny Acton Academy every day in my house from three o'clock to 10 o'clock at night, every single day, seven days a week. We tried it, and I don't want to say it's not for everyone. We really wanted to be that. We had a great school right in our neighborhood. But when our youngest was told that she couldn't, like, was reading an 800-page novel, and they would not put her in advanced reading in second grade, like, it just led to a number of decisions. Like, I don't, the bureaucracy needed to let my child advance at their own speed is becoming too much. So I know that's very school-dependent and everything else, but I just want my child to have unfettered growth. And I'll go back to the workplace just so this is a business podcast. I want my people to grow and I want my managers who lead to make their people grow. Um, You tell a great story about someone like had to make a hiring decision. Can you tell that? I'm trying to remember who it was. I've got it flagged, but I don't want to flip through my book. Uh, I had to choose between two managers and how did they choose? Right. Okay. So the, uh, the story goes like this. There are two people and you have to make a big promotion. And the question is, who should you promote? And the way I recall it is the hiring manager picked a person whose people had gone on to accomplish the most, not the person where they could point to the ABC skills. Because if you're really looking for a coach, you might want to find someone who is coached. And right. which sits right next to this. One of the, I list a whole bunch of surprising rules in the book, and one of them is that turnover is a good thing. Turnover used to be a bad thing because training a, a machine operator takes a long time. And so companies would do everything they could to keep turnover low. Also, it gave them more power over their employees if it was considered socially unacceptable to have a lot of jobs on your resume. Now, the smartest companies are, A, doing things like encouraging their people to be on LinkedIn, et cetera, because if the only reason someone's staying is they can't get a better job, you probably don't want them anyway. No. And the second thing is being able to say, this might not be for you is the only way to get enrollment. And if you don't have enrollment, people who want to do it, like FDR wanted to go ahead and do his day the way he did it, you can't lead. All you can do is manage. And A lot of people are paying lip service to the revolutions going on around us, but they still want to go back to telling people what to do. And what I am seeing at companies like Automatic or Discourse.org or other really high-performing, very profitable organizations is when you get people in the room who want to do what needs to be done, so many other things go better. Yeah. It starts with the raw ingredients. So, I mean, I learned this from my partner, Gary. Like, he always says, I'm a bad manager, which might not be the, like a good mantra to put in your head. So, like, I don't want to manage. I want to hire the kind of people that don't require it. So he says, let's put all of our effort into right. recruitment of people who match our mission and what we look for in our culture and the skills. And they won't need to be managed. And it's more about now you can go to the coaching mode versus you manage people that are not a great fit. You can lead people that are a great fit. And I will say turnover is a problem, 
if you're failing at the recruitment. You haven't right. created a value proposition that yes. makes people want to line up to, to be there, then it is a loss for you because now you got the job back as the manager. You're doing two jobs while you're looking for another. If you're an entrepreneur, that's a nightmare they regularly experience. But it usually comes down to you would be celebrating this if you had three candidates just waiting for the job. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'll say this for the entrepreneurs. We, we learned this the hard way one year, um, and it, they're dear friends. We had 70 million in production walk out of my wife's team. And most of that attributed to one incredible realtor. And it wasn't until we had gone through all the five stages that we realized what a great story that was for us, actually, that this person had come from a project management job in a tech company, didn't love their job, but was talent. We replaced their salary in a single year, and they went on to set all kinds of records for production and become their own entrepreneur. And after we got through that, we realized that's a recruiting story. If right. you would like that, then come right. join us. And our job is to develop you to where you want to go. But if you don't realize that that departure can actually help you actually fill the line, it, it takes a while. So that was, there's scars. My wife is probably turning off the podcast right now. But it was, uh, it was hard learning for us because we were also culpable. We didn't have any sort of queue of recruits that would be ready to step into that. And we got those jobs back because we hadn't done that essential job. But, you know, this goes back to the which manager should you hire thing, which is maybe you want to work at a firm that regularly has people leave because they're making so much money they can do it without you. That's, yeah. that's a testament to the, your system. That gets more people into the pipeline. Was it... Um, I can't remember if it was Chrysler. One of those guys was like known as like more CEOs came out of his pipeline. Right. It'd be like being an assistant coach for Bill Belichick, right? Yeah, yeah I want to go there. I want to go work for Nick Saban. I want to take less money because what I'm getting is a giant catapult forward in my career if I can nail that job. Right, exactly. Leaders make leaders. That was what I wrote in the, that section. It was Tom Peters that had to make that choice. Um, talk to me about Kokoro. I'd never heard about this. And it's this, tell me what Kokoro means. So uh, I'm a sucker for a very useful term that doesn't exist in the English language. So one that you will learn one day soon is the relationship between the in-laws of a young couple that just got married. There's no word for that in English. And in Yiddish, the word is machatanister, which is that this person is sort of related to me, but not really. And Machatanister? Machatanister, yes. And in, okay, in, all right. My in, assistant's been teaching me lots of Yiddish, so I got one to go. drop on her now. In Purple Cow, I talk about otaku, which is an unreasonable obsession with something in pop culture. Mm -hmm. And in this book, I'm talking about kokoro. Kokoro is a Japanese word. And if you look at the ideogram from the Chinese, it's a house with a heart in it. And <laughs> what it means That's is... Great. What does it mean when where you are spending your day is where you want to spend your day? What does it mean when you aren't just bringing the mercenary, this is my job mindset, but this is where my heart is? And the thing about Kokoro is it's a choice. It is not something you are born with. You were not born to be a football coach or a rock star. You were born, perhaps, to create certain interactions with people, to make a certain difference in the world. But you can choose not to do what you love, but to love what you do. 
And that is a piece of emotional labor. It's a skill. If we're doing our jobs right and building our companies, divisions, departments as leaders, then that becomes a place where they could put their heart in that home is my takeaway. It's like, how do we create an environment where people can connect their mission to the work, therefore making work that may not be important by itself, important to them. And, And when it is, they just take unreal ownership, right? When they connect it to something higher. Correct. Yes. And then, Customer of uh, that too. I mean, you told uh, the story. Uh, I, I, I yes. want to go to that car wash, but the nearest one's in Florida from here that you told that story. Can you talk right. about the car wash that brought meaning to a car wash? So Thomas Deary's younger brother was born with a significant amount of uh, uh, cognitive challenge. He's on the autism spectrum. And when he was in his 20s, he said to his dad, what's going to happen to my brother? And the two of them decided to build a business that would not just do okay, but thrive with uh, neurologically challenged people working there. And Rising Tide Car Wash uh, outperforms every other car wash in this, in its region. And when they opened the second one, it paid for itself in, I think, three months. When yeah. you go to Rising Tide, what you discover is that your car was already clean enough before you got there. No matter where you're getting your car washed, you're getting your car washed for how it makes you feel. Feel right. while you're at the car wash and feel when you leave the car wash. And by optimizing all the systems for the kind of people who work there, they actually created a better car wash. So people pay more, people wait in line, people drive out of their way. The turnover is close to zero. The employee satisfaction is higher. It's safer. And by all measures, it's a better solution to the problem because instead of optimizing for yield per minute, they optimized for what is it that people think is important in the first place. And a key part of all of this thinking I wrote about in my book, This is Marketing, which is there's, because of mass marketing, pressure to make something that appeals to everyone. And when we try to do that, we make something that appeals to no one that other than Heinz ketchup, there aren't too many examples of a product that's for everyone. The hard work is to make it for someone, the smallest viable audience. So, you know, in the case of a car wash, a thousand customers is an enormous number. In the case of someone who's selling real estate in Austin, Texas, if you sell 30 houses a year, you're off the charts. That means you only need 30 customers to give you a listing, 30, right? Mm -hmm. So ignore the others. Shun the non-believers. If people don't get the joke, say thank you. Send them to your competitor because they're not your competitor and stand for something. If we can embrace that, then we can take responsibility. All right. Well, you just touched a number of chords for me. Like As a co-author of The One Thing, less is more is a mantra I love. And I actually believe that that focus actually leads a lot of people to blow up in unexpected ways. And you describe it with a couple of examples that we don't have to go into. But if you find that, especially that nerdy, highly demanding customer, and you win with them, because you focused on them, you actually have created a product that may surprise you in its mass appeal. And often, even if it isn't a good fit, because that fastidious person loves it and wrote the incredible detailed review, other people want to try it. Well, if it made so-and-so happy, I mean, how could I be unhappy with it? 
um, all, all that craziness. I interviewed one of our top agents in Houston. She's had 4,000 clients luxury. The thing that struck me, every year she limits her core database to just 50 people. She focuses on 50 people and tries to bring so much value that boom. And I was like, well, what are the other 3,950? He goes, well, I've done, they've all worked their way through the system. We just either have a relationship or we don't at that point. It's not purposeful, but that that hyper-focus actually leads to an enormous business if you do it well. Right. Exactly. It's just scary because you say, if I put all my chickens into one basket, I have to watch the basket. And like, yeah, you do. Yeah. (laughs) You have to mind it well. Oh gosh. Another little, I'm going to jump a little bit to the back, like the kind of the implementation game. We hopefully we understand as managers, as leaders, we want a great work environment. We want people to love working for us. If I'm a business owner, it doesn't have to be always that family feel but it could also be like, man, my I had a breakthrough here. I had a breakthrough working for so-and-so. My career took off after that. That's the, actually the best legacy we can have. And I would love it if they stayed my favorite people forever. But that's also unrealistic, right? Life is going to take them different places. But by grooming them, I can be better. You talked about page 19 in this project. And it struck me as a way of kind of like, how do we get to the practical? Could you describe what page 19 is, please? Sure. So the, the book that I did before this one, I didn't write it. I organized it. It's the Carbon Almanac. Uh, I was a volunteer for a year and a half along with 900 or 1,800 or 300 other people. And we needed to write a 97,000-word fact-checked, footnoted, illustrated uh, book in five months. And not one of us had the authority to do that. I was the only person who'd ever built an almanac before. And we knew there was going to be a page 19. But we also knew there wasn't one person who had the authority and track record to completely write page 19. So we said, look, here's the way it's going to work. Someone's going to come up with an idea. Someone's going to make it better. Someone else is going to write a paragraph. Someone else is going to find the source. Someone else is going to make that better. And then one day, there's going to be a page 19. Page 19 thinking is the word yet. It's not finished yet. It's not perfect yet. That being able to show up and advance the ball is different than saying, I got an A on the test. It's perfect. There is no perfect. That the Lexus has, you know, regularly ranked the highest quality car ever made, but with an electron microscope, every single part is defective because it's not about can we get rid of every single defect? It's is this the thing that is needed right here and right now? And the, the second thing that I want to go sideways on is, you know, one of the things that you and I have learned from Tom Peters is that when you hand somebody a copy of In Search of Excellence and you say, this is what things are like around here, a conversation ensues. And that's why the book sold millions of copies to people who don't buy business books. My audacious goal in this book is for people to hand it to their employees and say, let's get real or let's not play. This book takes three hours to read. Read the book. If you're not willing to spend three hours to read the book, you can't work here. Read the book and then we're going to talk about it. Because if we don't talk about the mutual engagement and promises we're making to each other, it's not going to happen. And so if this matters, we can't just sort of glide our way through it. We have to talk about it. 
I love that. You took that right where I was hoping. None of us to live this book, nobody knows what page 19 is going to look like. Right, exactly. We're going to have to do it together. You told this amazing story of the guy, the dominant player in the office carpet business that looked up one day and realized they were one of the largest contributors to environmental damage of anybody, walked in and said to his team, we're going to be different. I don't know how, but I will let you fill in the blank. By this date, we will be carbon neutral or whatever. And I just wrote authorship is ownership. It's a mantra around here because like, it's easy to forget. But people who, write, who, people who create the plan don't battle the plan. And usually that's just a bunch of executives. But when you allow everyone to come up with a solution, like how do we get, we all know that point C is better. We're at point A. How do we, that gap, you can actually trust people more than you think to help you come up with a solution. Because by the way, they're the ones actually talking to the customers. They're the ones actually working the registers. They're the ones like, they are actually, a lot of our employees are closer to the customer than we are. Yeah, no, that's Krulak's law. He was the commandant of the Marines. And he said, World War II and the Korean War were won by the generals. But any war from now on is going to be won by, won by the privates, by the enlisted men. Because Who's they're called? the ones. Sorry? Who's the person you quoted? His name is Krulak, K-R-U-L-A-K. He was the commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps. Wow, and I love that. the idea that the lowest paid people in your organization are the ones who are answering the phone and talking to the customers is absurd because the, what you've basically done is said, the place where I am putting the least amount of my effort and assets is the single most important part of my organization. And when we learn from these interactions and we give people the authority and responsibility to make them better, they get better. Yes. And uh, I know I learned it from Walton, right? He would travel around and just chat to people stocking shelves, work a register. Like he didn't want to sit in a boardroom. He wanted to get as close to the battlefield, if we're going to stick with that metaphor as possible. You told the excellent story of Kinko's that I've never heard. How did he make Kinko's into this billion dollar company? He just went to stores and said, what are you doing that's innovative and better? Yeah. Yeah, Mike, learn Paul, from Paul, is, Paul is such a character and he was so, had so much humility about his secret and no one wanted to learn his secret. He would just tell them and they wouldn't do it anyway. Because it's not sexy enough. It's too obvious, right? Uh, I, I, and it doesn't harness all the credit into one corner boardroom, right? Yeah. That exactly. might be part of the problem as well. Um, yeah. But when we ask the question, as a group, and it's a conversation, how do we do this better? And it's not a lecture. That's where a lot of the surprising innovations are going to come from, right? Exactly. All of those, you know, those patents at 3M, they didn't come from like one centralized group of people. They came from people tinkering all throughout. And we need to tell the 3M story if it hasn't been told on the show already. The patent for uh, replaceable, removable glue is worth billions of dollars and it was worth zero until the chairman's secretary got involved because they oh. couldn't sell a post-it to save their lives. And she sent a case of post-its to the secretary of the chair people of the other 499 Fortune 500. And suddenly, the chairman of the Fortune 500 were sending notes back with post-its on them. Oh, and the wow. next thing you know, you got post-its. 
All right. Well, that goes back to find a specific customer. They were trying to sell to everyone. Start with one specific customer and you might actually create a movement. No, I've never heard that one. I love that. All right. So I want to, this is the one thing podcast. So like I've got two questions and I know some of it might be the page 19. Where do we start? Does it start with what you said earlier? Read it and give it to your people. I think uh, doing it is so much more important than reading it. And it means starting in the smallest possible way to engage with the real skills and to measure the right stuff, not the easy stuff. So I think one of the most direct ways to do that is to hand it to somebody and say, pick any two sections. We're going to talk about them on Monday, any two sections you want. But yes, talking about it is the first step. Having a real conversation. And you mentioned real skills, right? It's not about your resume. It's not about the hard skills. Can I program in this language? What are some of the real skills that we need more of in the workplace? Well, you know, if you think, Zig had a great riff about this, best boss, the best employee, the best coworker, the best spouse, what skills would you want them to have? And -hmm. the group always comes up with the same list, which is honest, empathic, keeps uh, their promises, creative, sense of humor, hardworking, persistent. And they say, well, those aren't skills. Those are attitudes. And yeah, but you can learn them. You can learn to be a little bit more honest. You can learn to be a little bit more uh, encouraging. Well, if you can learn to be a little bit more of anything, it's a skill. And yet <laughs> we don't list those skills. We don't talk about those skills because we think there's some sort of weird byproduct. They're the whole point. And if you have those things, the hard skills take care of themselves. So you're hiring someone to lead in one of your companies. How are you finding out if they have those skills? Is that Can you do that through anything other than reference checks or having worked with them before? That might be why. Like they're hard to measure, right? They're hard to measure. I I have found that reference checks can spectacularly backfire. Mm -hmm. Um, My rule, which I made a couple years ago, is I will not work with anyone who I haven't worked with before. Now that sounds like a paradox, but it's not. What I do, it's so much easier now than it used to be, is I actually hire someone to do a project and I pay them for it. Usually a few hundred bucks. Because what you learn from someone in an interview is if they're good at interviewing. What you learn by hiring someone to do a project is, are they good at doing a project? That seems to be a little bit more relevant to me. And what I have found is that people tend to be really consistent. And so if they're giving you a hard time or their quality substandard or they're late or they don't understand instructions on the project you're paying them for, they're probably going to be like that the next time. And there are very few jobs where you can't find a project that you can pay somebody to do over the weekend and find out if what they're like when they do a project. That's great. I mean, there's nothing like real world experience working with someone to know what they're like when you work with them. Um, I, uh, that's one of the reasons, like, I think it's so great when companies prioritize promoting from within Versus there is a gift sometimes if you're moving in a new direction to bring in brand new DNA for sure. But I love the idea that people within have real opportunities to move upwards. Yeah. And that just yeah. gives you, again, a higher caliber of people willing to take those other jobs because they can see that, oh, you used to start in the mailroom. Oh, I just actually brought up the dip, didn't I? Um, <laughs> that whole thing. 
you actually signed that one for me and you wrote quit Jay. <laughs> I guess that was your mantra. Cause that is what you're trying to teach people to do is strategic quitting, right? Quit something. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it. I mean, that's a key part of the one thing is uh, you're already doing the one thing. You just got to quit the other thing so you can do the one thing more. Oh, absolutely. People don't realize how much nonsense they're doing until they stop and get all right. that time back. People are like, I don't have time to read. Yeah, but you have time to do, and you could just list. A lot of them involving a cell phone, right? Uh, the things that we're doing instead of doing that. Seth, what did I not ask you that I should have asked you? Um, I got to tell you, this has been thrilling and complete. The one thing I thought you were going to ask me is what my one thing was. I would um, love to. But that's just me being curious now. I mean, I yes, please, please. So my take is that the one thing is never a task. It is more complicated than a task. It is an, a, an, an output, a result. And thinking back to my work of 40 years, when I'm doing it the way I want to do it, the one thing is earning trust and customer traction. That if I'm doing work that engages with other people in a way that they people trust me to do more, then that is my one thing. And anything other than that is just a clerical uh, hobby slash distraction. And my one thing has nothing to do with, did I get paid for this piece of output? Yeah. Because I'm getting paid with the benefit of the doubt not necessarily getting paid with a royalty check. One of the things people get confused, thank you for sharing that, as I was genuinely curious, and I might have asked you after we stopped recording, but now we get it for everyone. People think of, there's the, what's my one thing today? And a lot of times that is an activity, but it almost should always come back to something bigger. Like when I imagine what I've been put on this earth for, right? What my calling, my mission is, um, what's that value that I seek above all else? That's the, the question that you answered. And what I love about that, like that clarity, you just gave one thing, you know, like earning trust. Now you can just ask the question, will this earn trust or not with future yeah. customers? And that gives you like that, you know, that low cost airline, will this make us cost less or not? Like it gives you a really black and white yeah. answer that you may not always want. Exactly. Especially exactly. if you're trying to convince yourself that it's something you need to do just because you want to do it, but not because yeah. you don't need to do it. Yeah. All right. Well, Seth, thank you for pouring into me and our listeners here at The One Thing. Really appreciate you. Um, huge fan. And, you know, open invitation if you're ever in Austin, Texas, holler. And I'd love to take you out for coffee and maybe a gourmet chocolate, which I think one of the things <laughs> you mentioned once is that you're a chocolate aficionado. And I promptly went to go buy the chocolates you, you mentioned. I couldn't find them anywhere. Well, Jay, this is a pleasure. Keep making a ruckus because your leadership Thank matters. You. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to The One Thing Podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business, visit theonething.com. There you'll find information on one-on-one -on -one coaching, our exclusive community membership program, and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T-H-E, the number one, dot com to start living the life you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. 
Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing.com. We'll see you next week.